Good morning. Good morning. So we're continuing our series on what really matters, and uh, it's Holy Week. Today's beginning of Holy Week, which as all of you know is the most important week of the, the church year. Uh, this is the year, this is the week of the year uh, where we, we rehearse uh, the sort of central drama of the Christian faith. And so we're here. We've, we've been in Lent preparing for this and, and here we are entering in to Palm Sunday and heading towards Easter. And the theme for today um, is does the cross really matter? Or why does the cross matter? And we'll wait for the train to go by and then we'll reflect on that. Yeah, I see Billy Darden's out there. I know. He, he's lingering in his fluorescent yellow vest. Not sure if that's a liturgical color or not. Did you need us, Bill? Just want to listen. Okay. Well, I thought I thought maybe you need to make an announcement. In which case, we were waiting for the train. We could. I believe that. So we've been talking about what really matters. Um, trying to think through. We've been using Bishop Bickerton's book during Lent. Uh, what are we fighting for? Right? Not what are we fighting for? Although that's the question we sometimes ask. Like, why are we fighting? Um, but what, what's essential? We've been trying to sort through what's essential to the Christian faith. Because so often in the church, our unity is disrupted by arguments over things that if we take the time to step back and really reflect together, at least some of the time we're pretty clear that they don't matter nearly as much as we think they do. Um, which doesn't mean they, they aren't important. Uh, doesn't mean that we don't care about them. Um, just means that they may not be essential. So we've been trying to sort through uh, what's essential. And, and this week, not surprisingly, as we lead into Holy Week and the Passion, um, we're thinking about the cross. Um, thinking about the cross and what that tells us about what's essential. And the passage that we as a congregation are focusing on today in all the services and in here as well um, is this well-known passage from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's a, a passage that I suspect most of you know well. Um, it contains uh, one of the church's oldest hymns, um, which is not surprising in some ways. Um, 
poetry, which is what most hymns are, is poetry set to music, uh, we often <coughs> lean on poetry when we find ourselves trying to bring to speech things that are incredibly difficult to bring to speech, that somehow just our normal prose don't seem to do it justice. And sometimes you need, you need poetry, you need a hymn uh, to try to plumb some of the depths of the eternal mysteries. And certainly the cross stands at the heart of one of the Christian's faith's deepest mysteries. What is it uh, that God is doing in and through the cross of Christ? And what, what might our reflecting on Jesus' life and death, what might that teach us when we think about Christian unity? Well, Paul has that on his mind in what we call the, the opening of the second chapter of Philippians. So listen to the opening four verses which lead up to the hymn or the poem. Paul writes, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's actually just the first two verses, and already it's sort of overwhelming. We've been talking a fair bit about unity and unity within diversity. And it's hard not to read these opening couple of verses and not just feel, at least I do, maybe you don't, but I, I feel almost overwhelmed by what feels like the the impossibility of such a standard, right? If we were just to sort of think of it in human terms, right? Be of the same mind, right? Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You might think, you know, we can't even agree on what kind of coffee we should have for Sunday morning, right? How strong should we make it? Um, but Paul, I think, is not suggesting and saying being of the same mind that somehow our thinking is in lockstep in all things. I don't think that's what he's suggesting. I think he's really sort of setting us up for this hymn. And notice what he says. We're trying to think about, like, how would it be possible even for us to be of one accord? And he says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others 
as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So Paul is clear that at the, at the heart of this unity that he thinks is possible in Christ. At the heart, the very center, at the core of this unity is this deep humility. This, this deep humility. I don't know about you, but I, I find it difficult in nearly any case, let alone all cases, to regard others as better than myself. That's, that's a challenge, right? Um, it's really hard day in and day out. I mean, most of my day is, feels like is sort of organized around a lot of my own interests um, and a lot of what I want, a lot of what I desire. And Paul's calling the Philippian Christians to do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. How many times would petty disagreements never even surface if I began with the assumption that the person that I'm squabbling with, that their interests are more important than mine. How many times would the things that we find ourselves disagreeing about here at Muncie, whatever they are, um, how would those look different if we regarded the interests of others as more important than our own? I don't know, but Paul seems to think it would matter. And you might think, well, that just seems so totally counter to human nature. It just seems like part of human nature to, to be sort of self-involved, sort of self-centered. And at one level you would say, would say that's true. That's certainly part of our fallen nature. But Paul doesn't stop there when he's talking about being of the same mind. Here's, what, here's the, the phrase that leads into the poetry. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So this one mind that we're called to have is not like, well, let's just figure out who the smartest person in the room is, and then we'll all be one mind with them. <laughs> Right? 
or let's just let's just vote on who's got the best idea, and then we'll be one mind with them. Paul says, no, this this one-mindedness that's at the heart of our unity is inseparable from the, the mind that Jesus had, who actually, being fully God and fully human, showed us what this might look like to live in humility. So let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And here begins the poetry. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. So Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this, this model of one mindedness. This model of humility is not something that we have to, to wonder about. It's like, is it I mean, Jesus lived this out? This is at the, the very heart of what we're rehearsing this week. This humility of Jesus, who though he was, right, in the form of God didn't regard that equality with God. Jesus humbles himself. Jesus humbles himself, taking the form of a slave. Jesus says in John, if you want, if you want to be greatest in this kingdom, you have to be as one who serves. And Jesus models that. For us, it's not just cheap talk from the lips of Jesus. I mean, this is this is what Jesus' life was about. And over the centuries, some people have been confused, understandably, by this phrase about Jesus emptying himself. And some people have thought that maybe Jesus was emptying himself of his divinity to become human. Paul's pretty clear that's, that's not what he's talking about. That would make it easier for us to hold together this mystery, right? If we could just sort of think of Jesus sequentially, of, of the Christ being God and then emptying that divinity in order to become human and then after Jesus dies and is resurrected, he picks back up his divinity again. That would be easier for us to get our heads around, but that's not at all what Paul is talking about. And so he, he leans on this poetry, trying to hold these things together. The challenge, and this is the challenge for Christians across the ages, 
is that part of the good news, at the center of the good news of this week is, is not to start with a view of God, just sort of some generic God. Like, what, what would it mean to be God? And then try to figure out how Jesus is that. Right? It'd be easy to sort of think, you know, what does it mean to be a God? And you have a sort of generic, general understanding of what God might be, and then think, okay, now what does it mean for Jesus to be that? The really radical part of the gospel is to say, we begin by confessing that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. That means we have to let Jesus reveal to us what it means to be God, which is much, much harder. And so what we see in this passage, what we see revealed in this holy week as we rehearse the passion story is that Jesus reveals that at the very heart of what it means to be God is self-giving love. The very heart of God is self-giving love. That's not incidental. That's not negotiable if you're a Christian. This is at the very heart of this story. From the very beginning, once we see clearly the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we, we, we sense that this has been the story all along, but Jesus reveals it preeminently in this drama of Holy Week that what it means to be God is to be the one who comes with self-giving love. And that's what Paul is suggesting that the church in Philippi has to somehow come to grips with, that once you and I and them see that that's at the heart of the very character of God, and that our unity is rooted not in human wisdom, not in us just thinking um, really insightful things, but is rooted in this posture of self-giving love, then Paul is convinced that if they actually live, even a pale reflection of that, that they will bear witness to a kind of unity that is not of an earthly kind, that it will bear witness to the very character of God. Because those in that congregation, those in that church, just like we in this church, give ourselves to each other in humility. And what does this poem, this hymn, go on to say? What's the God the Father's response to Jesus' 
humbling himself in self-giving love. Well, it's what we see at the end of the story that we'll celebrate next week. The hymn goes on to say, Therefore, because Jesus has done all this, humbling himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we hadn't heard that so often, we might have our breath taken away. That, that's a stupendous claim, right? This hymn is picking up on a passage from Isaiah, a very uh, powerful uh, kind of claim about Israel's God, that it's only at, 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 the, at the name of Israel's God that every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And this ancient hymn is taking this highly exalted language about Israel's God and saying it's at the name of Jesus. It's at the name of Jesus that eventually every knee will bend in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Self-giving love. The cross that, has, that embodies that at the heart of our story. I'd like to think that we could agree that that's, that's essential. You know, we've sorted through a lot over the past few weeks of what's essential, what's not essential. There's still lots of more of that sorting to do, trying to decide what's essential, what isn't essential. But I think most of us have a clear sense that this drama that we rehearsed this week is, is essential. It's not coincidental that in the Gospels, um, the passion narrative takes up an inordinate amount of space in each of the Gospels. Uh, that's not happenstance. Um, this is a part of our story that is not just important for understanding who Jesus is, but for understanding who we are. Who we are. And it, it matters, right? This is central to who we are, that Jesus gives himself in self-giving love. I mean, it's hard to imagine how this would happen, but I mean, if, if someone, you know, uncovered some, you know, some, some archaeological dig, some lost manuscript that insisted that Jesus went to the cross kicking and screaming, I think most of us wouldn't take that as so, right? 
I mean, Jesus says, no, no one's taking my life from me. Now he's laying it down. That's not an insignificant part of the story. It wasn't just that Jesus died. Right? It wasn't simply that Jesus died, but that Jesus offers his life in self-giving love. And so when Jesus calls us to take up our cross, he's talking about our willingness to give ourselves up in self-giving love. What does that look like in daily life? There are certainly opportunities every day for you and I to die to ourselves, to die to our agendas, to die to my desires, my interests, and to give myself in self-giving love to my neighbor to my colleagues, to my students, to my family, to my neighbors. Paul is convinced that this, this is at the core of Christian unity, this posture of humility that flows out of the very heart of God that flows out of God's self-giving love revealed perfectly, beautifully, preeminently in the life and death of Jesus. Let's pray. We come before you, O oh God, humbled when we pause to reflect on the drama that we reenact this week. That when your people long to be saved, shouting out, Hosanna, save us, and having their own ideas what it might mean to be saved. That Jesus rides in on a humble animal. Jesus gives himself his whole body over to be mocked and shamed and spat upon, is crucified outside of the city, gives his entire life in self-giving love. Gracious God, we don't pretend to understand all that that might mean. And yet we sense 
in, in that drama that you are telling us something deeply profound about who you are and who you've called us to be. May this Holy Week be a gift to us as we pause to reflect how you've called us to have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. And by the power of the Spirit of Jesus, your Holy Spirit, may we be so empowered in our daily lives to give ourselves after the manner of Jesus in and through that same self-giving love. We pray this in and through the name of the one at whose name one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <coughs>